Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CDUSA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. You've just learned the most important aspect of fly fishing, humility. With this line, Ike, a fly shop owner and veteran, introduces Coulter, a Marine wounded in Afghanistan, to fly fishing. Without giving too much away, I'm honored to introduce our guest today to discuss the new feature film, Mending the Line. Stephen Camillo and Joshua Caldwell, welcome to the February Room. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm really excited to learn more about this film. Um, you sent us a link and and um, I watched a, a good part of it. I'm Honestly, I didn't have a chance to finish it. I'm going to finish it uh, as soon as we're done here. Um, 
but uh, as I was telling Stephen here before we started recording, I was kind of immediately kind of blown away with, uh, with the production of the film and um, a really impressive uh, piece of cinematography. The opening scene, the way that it was shot, Lauren and I were talking about that and, oh, wow, this is really cool. It's like one continuous shot. Um, but anyway, um, let's just kind of dive into this, guys, and um, tell me about this film. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm the writer. Um, I came up with the idea while I was uh, living in Yellowstone National Park. And um, my dad at the time was battling cancer caused by Agent Orange exposure. Um, he was a... Uh, he was in the army in Vietnam. And so 30 years later, he, re- he, he was diagnosed with cancer and, um, you know, he went through the whole VA system and was dealing with, um, you know, the after effects of being in war, it was, which was something I'd never seen before. And, you know, at that time I was writing, uh, for fly fishing magazines and fishing a lot and, um, had heard a little bit about the therapeutic aspects of fly fishing, mostly, um, for, you know, breast cancer patients and, and people like that who, who were using it um, almost as physical therapy, but it was also showing that it had this um, capacity to help heal minds um, in emotional therapy. So um, I kind of took those two stories and, and put them into this, this one tale of a, a Marine who comes back from Afghanistan wounded, um, both emotionally and physically, and, and is sent to a VA hospital in Livingston, Montana. And there he meets, like you said, a Vietnam vet who teaches him how to fish. And it really, um, you know, it's really his journey of uh, overcoming trauma. Wow, cool. So, so Stephen, when you started writing this script, how long ago was that? Uh, years ago. Um, gosh, eight, ten years ago, I would, you know, the idea came to me and I, I started hacking away at it. And, you know, over time, it sort of uh, distilled into to what you saw on the screen. Wow. And, and you live in Livingston now, correct? Uh, Bozeman. I was, yeah, I was down in, in the park and in Gardner, Montana, uh, when I was writing it. And then a few years ago, we moved up to Bozeman and, um, that's where we ended up shooting part of it and, and part of it in the Livingston Paradise Valley area. Okay, cool. So you definitely had the, uh, the location, um, checked off the box as far as inspiration for fly fishing goes. Yeah, I don't know. Josh can can talk a little bit more about this, but I don't know if anyone's written a film where every location was an exact location, you know, where I used to fish or I used to hang out or, uh, you know, the the road I used to drive on or the house I used to drive by. And, you know, when when they came out to scout the film, I was like, oh, this is where we're going to shoot this. This is where we're going to shoot this. And I, I came to realize it's not always so easy to get every location that you think you know you're going to get but um, a lot of a lot of them made it in there and uh, you know it's exciting to see sort of this authenticity of of Montana and and, you know these places that that I was fishing uh, come to life well Steve to be to be fair you did quite a bit of spot burning in the script so uh, you know I just save you I just save you a little bit from uh, giving away all your secrets yeah right somebody's got to pre-fish all that stuff to make sure it's going to play. So, um, well, that's very cool. Yeah. That must be really rewarding to see, um, all those years of, uh, of location scouting, um, come into play. Uh, Josh, how did you become involved in the film? Yeah. So I, um, kind of came to it more through typical Hollywood, uh, procedures. I, uh, 
uh, Stephen, after he'd written the script, he got it to a couple producers. Uh, uh, one of our producers, Kelly McKendry, and um, and Scott McLeod. Basically, they came on board and they started going, "Okay, how do we put this thing into production?" Right. And so I, uh, so Kelly, started reaching out to a lot of different producers that had shot movies in Montana. Montana has gotten a lot more production recently, but you know, at the time there weren't a lot of movies shooting there. And so, um, she reached out because my manager had produced a film that took place in Montana and, uh, he informed her that it actually was not shot in Montana. They shot it in Canada, but he asked what the movie was. And she said, it's about a Marine who returns to, you know, a VA clinic and he, he learns to fly fish. And my manager's a fly fisherman. He knows that I'm a fly fisherman. And he said, do you have a director yet? She said, no. And so he, uh, he was like, well, I've got a director for you. Can I send him the script? And so she said, yes, she was open to it. And, uh, they sent me the script and I read it and I just was like, I, I gotta find a way I gotta get to do this movie. Like I can't let anyone else make this film. Steve had written a really beautiful script, you know, that, that really hit me. And, and, and I knew that if it hit me, because I don't, you know, I, I had not experienced loss in the way that Steven had, I, I had not experienced trauma the way that, you know, the main character had, but if that, despite all that, it was still hitting me, right. I knew that we had a real potential, potentially great film on our hands. And so I made the pitch and, uh, you know, to, to Steven and Kelly's and Scott's credit, they, they brought me on board. And then um, tell me a little bit about the casting process, the cast and, and talk a little about the cast in this film. It has a, an, an amazing cast. Some of my my favorite actors in this, in fact, that you don't see, you know, a lot. But I, I love Brian Cox, for, for instance, and um, always, always been a big West Studi fan, too. So um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, every movie needs a cast, especially independent film. And um, that can be kind of really challenging nowadays because so much stuff is getting made. Um, that it just really presents some challenges. But we had a really fantastic casting director, Neely Eisenstein, who was on board very early on. And, you know, we started saying, who can we get, right? Steven had stars in his eyes and uh, really wanted to go after some some very top-level actors. <laughs> uh, he thought he could lure them in. Uh, with the notion of fly fishing on screen. But, you know, again, in independent film, you just sometimes, casting is often about the offers and the money, right? You got to get the script to them that has the message and the promise, but you got to get through the agent. Um, and so, you know, we we basically, the challenge for us was, was really finding a cast that felt dynamic, that felt different, that helped supported, you know, the budget that we had and would just really work well creatively. And I, I believe, like... I believe it was actually one of the agencies who suggested Brian as an option. And of course, like Succession was sort of just wrapping up season one. And I think all of us were like, oh, really? do you think Brian would do it? Like, because obviously I know Brian from all the films he's ever, you know, he's made. And and we're like, is he even gettable? Like, would he do this? And uh, turns out that he was. And he was very enthusiastic about participating and playing this role. And he loved the story. And he doesn't often do these sort of smaller budget films, right? Like, I mean, he's doing yeah, know, massive he's TV show. Braveheart. Huge yeah, exactly. Braveheart. Braveheart, Troy. for God's sakes. Yeah, <laughs> Troy, I think, yeah. you know, Born, the Born series. Like, come on. But he just, again, I, I think that what you're going to hear over and over again, as Steve and I talk about this film, is just the level of um, 
interest and support and sort of love and the need to be a part of the project that came out of everybody involved, right? And I think that's a huge testament to Steve's writing and the script that he wrote um, because we just, you know, every actor we went to said yes. And so Brian, wow. um, Brian's agency, because Brian got involved, we started saying, well, who else, you know, who do you got? Um, we're looking to fill these other roles. And they actually pitched us Sinqua. And I was not really familiar with his work. It had been mostly in TV. Um, but I was sort of immediately taken with the performances that I saw him give. And he just, again, you know, you sort of start out going, okay, we need a guy who looks like a Marine. Like he's got, he, he's got to fit that bill, right? Like as much as we don't want to rely on like the physical, physical attributes when you cast, it's like, he's got to look like a guy who's like a lifer Marine. So like, let's start there. And, um, but then, but he's got to be able to show a vulnerability, you know, and, and be willing to go there. And that very quickly narrows the list of candidates that can, fulfill those two sort of things. And Sinqua was definitely that. I mean, a fantastic actor. You know, I saw the vulnerability that he played in so many of his other roles. And he sells it as a Marine. There's no question, right, in the movie that he's like, he's a guy who was born to be a Marine. And so I think that, you know, that was important. And then also, you know, looking at Perry, Perry was somebody that our casting director recommended. Again, I was unfamiliar with her, but she had been, she'd been for a number of seasons in a show called in the dark, which was like one of the number one streaming shows on Netflix and CW, but very, very popular. I was not familiar with it, but what Neely told us was, well, you know, she's also fly fished before. And I said, Whoa, really? (laughs) (laughs) Most of the actors you go to, they haven't, you know? And one of the things, the challenges, the inherent challenges in this movie is that unlike, say, like a river runs through it, we just did not have the budget in pre-production to have our actors on board for two months learning how to cast a fly rod. You know, we had days or maybe a week. So anybody that had maybe even like a smidge of prior experience was definitely of interest to us. And, And Perry had a year before. Um, gone up to Montana and stayed at a a cabin that was used for veterans to come up and fly fish and horseback ride and that kind of thing and be out in nature. And she had gone up there unrelated to anything with the movie or anything like that. And she just had, had fly fished and really liked it. And um, yeah. And so obviously then she became like a huge fan of it in the making of our movie and really got into it. Um, and then like guys like, you know, and then like, like Wes was somebody who years ago when the movie soul came out, the Pixar movie, I remember I, I wasn't aware of this, but he was one of the like counselors right up in not heaven, but up in the other world. And I remember a reviewer going, you know, movies need more Wes duty. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, yeah, they do. Like, he's so good. Like, obviously I'm a huge fan of his from heat and last of the Mohicans and hostiles. And like, I mean, he's just a fantastic actor. And I just said, what about Wes? Like, do you think we can get him? And, uh, you know, again, to Wes's credit, you know, being a veteran himself and he's very involved in sort of the, um, like the horse therapy, the equine therapy for veterans. Um, I believe he, he's, a he, he volunteers for an organization in New Mexico that does that. So he, again, he wasn't fishing, but the notion of sort of this, these therapeutic pursuits for people who are experiencing PTSD, I believe really spoke to him. And again, 
came out and made the movie, right? Like it was, it was so cool. And, and, and Patricia as well, Patricia was, is very much sort of a supporter of veterans, not that nobody else isn't, but you know, she really gravitated towards the film and really wanted to be a part of it. So we just found that along the way in all these important roles, we, we just found people that really, really wanted to be a part of it. And I think on any journey you go on, you want to be on a journey with the people that want to be there with you. It doesn't matter how much star power they have, how big of a name they are. If, if they're not really on board with, with what you're doing, like, it's almost pointless. Stephen, when you write a script, do you, you have in your head, obviously um, you have, you know, ideas and visions of, of who, who's going to play these characters. Um, did you have any sort of notions or ideas of who you might try to get for, for these roles? Or is that not something that a writer does? It seems to me like you would kind of have a, uh, I don't know, an ideal cast in your head maybe, or just, you know, some, some characters that you think of that like, Oh yeah, you know, maybe these three people might be a good option for this character or a little bit, but you know, you make up these characters and, and, and they sort of become your own, um, you know, almost mine singularly for a long time. And so when you start to say, uh, you know, a specific actor, you say, oh, but he doesn't have this part that I was looking for for that, you know, or, you know, he's he's about 90%, but where's that other 10%? And, and you just want everything to be so perfect. And of course, there are um, that, you know, there, I did know of some, as, as Josh noted, some fly fishermen who were actors who I, you know, I thought, you know, I just, we needed because we needed the person to fly fish. But, you know, as I, I learned um, later on, and as, as, you know, we started to get into production, like, you know, these, these people are incredible professionals, you know, they are able to sort of pick up anything almost at the drop of a hat. And even if they're not an expert, they can make themselves look an expert or they can make themselves look like a beginner. And, you know, and now when I look at the film, there is no other uh, Ike other than Brian Cox, you know, there is no other Coulter other than Sinclair. There's no other Lucy other than Perry, you know, they, they really embodied the roles um, in, in sort of the spirit of each of them to such a degree that, you know, it didn't matter what I thought of, think about, or, you know, who I was thinking about before, you know, they've, they've become those roles and I'm, you know, forever in debt for, you know, the passion and skill that they put into it. Cool. And were you on location for a, a portion of this? And, you know, did you, did you uh, have an opportunity to to instruct at all in the fly fishing aspect of it? Um, I was on set every day. I'm a producer on the film. Um, so I was pretty much on set every day. I was in the water with a net when we were doing fishing scenes. I was I was driving around grabbing waders for people who never wore them before, you know, our, our, our crew that needed to be in the water. Um, you know, so I got to do all sorts of crazy stuff. And I did not do any fishing. In, oh, I, I worked with... Um, Sinqua a little bit. And, you know, I got to go fishing a little bit with um, Perry, but we had a guy named Simon Gosworth. I'm not sure if you're familiar. He's one of the best casters in the world. And he is Farbank, um, you know, Sage and Rio and all those brands, um, their parent company. He's their director of education. And he goes around the world and teaches people how to spay cast and, and how to, you know, trout fish and all this stuff. So uh, they were gracious enough to give us give him to us for the shoot. And he worked with all our actors. He taught Brian how to cast with a bamboo rod. He, um, you know, you know, told them where, how to hold a rod, even if they weren't, you know, fishing, he, he got them to cast, he got them to, 
you know, wade in the water without falling down. So, you know, we owe a lot of the authenticity um, to Simon. And of course, Josh was directing every scene. And as a, you know, a passionate fly fisherman, he knew the importance of getting everything right and made sure, you know, that all of that was uh, nailed down. Yeah, it was really up to Steve and I to kind of produce the fly fishing elements of this film, you know, because our other producers, we either had other stuff going on or it's just not a world they are familiar with. So, and by me and Steve, I mean, Steve, um, I I, I really put it on him. I was like, Steve, like you're, you got to take over any of the fly fishing stuff in terms of producing it because, and what I mean, what I mean by that was like, you know, his, I mean, Steve early on had the connection to Farbank, you know, which allowed them to come on and be effectively become our tackle partner. I mean, they provided all the rods and reels um, in the film. They provided all the tackle. Um, They provided Simon, you know, who, in addition to teaching everyone, like Steve said, he was also on set rigging up all the rods and, and making sure that like, cause you know, I'm looking at performance. And so I've got Simon over my shoulder, looking at the cast, right. To like, I mean, literally like the, the fly cast, not the cast yeah, cast, right, like, right. you know, I've got him watching that, um, Steven watching it. And, and so I just think like, you know, again, to Steve, what Steven said, which is, it's so important. We got all that right. Or at least as, close as possible within, within, you know, the limitations we have. Um, but Steve and I, you know, I really put on Steven to sort of help produce and, and bring together a lot of the elements that we needed to make a movie that features fly fishing, you know, because just one of the, a, a simple example is the fact that like, you know, when you, when you go out, when you see, you know, Tom Rosenbauer's, you know, Orvis fly fishing lessons, or you see any of these guys, any of the fly fishing film festival, you know, movies, like, those are all documentaries. So like that's a camera crew or that that's just rolling hours and hours and hours of footage. Right. And then cutting it down into three minutes, you know? And so it looks like it's just like fish after fish, after fish, you're hooking in. It's great. We cannot do that on a movie because we do not have hours and hours and hours and hours waiting for a fish to appear and hope that our cast can actually catch one. Right. So all of that has to be faked essentially and produced much like it was on river runs through it. And one of the inherent challenges of making a film like this is that when you want to do like our opening scene with explosions and all that kind of stuff, there are like a long list of people you can call to take care of that. But if you want to do fly fishing, that list is two people and they, we hope they're still around doing it. Right. Because like, it just doesn't happen very often. And, um, and so, you know, through Steve, we got connected with, you know, again, with, with Farbank, with Simon, with Sims, uh, with Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, who built all the bamboo rods for the film. Um, and, and also like got connect us connected to a gentleman named Joe Urbani, who was, is a fisheries biologist. He, he builds trout ponds across the country. He also like sort of rehabilitates streams. Um, but the other thing he does is he's known for is he was the guy on a river runs through it who got the fish. Like he provided the actual fish on that film. And so we reached out to him. He's still based in Bozeman. And we said, Hey, we're making a movie. Like, you know, we know you did this for river runs through it. Would you come do it for our movie? And he said, yes. And so, um, you know, all those fish are wild fish, I believe, except for the cutthroats, right, Steve? Um, yeah, no, I believe the 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 Yellowstone cutthroats were what? Oh, well, wild! I think the I know the whitefish were hatchery fish, right? Yeah, I think we got those, which was fine. But I think every every other fish in the movie is a wild wild caught fish, 
Um, and so, you know, uh, so again, like, I mean, when we first met with Joe, I said, so Joe, like, you know, when River runs through it, I'm not saying you did this, but those fish were dead when you saw them on camera, right? <laughs> so that could have been grocery store fish for all I know, you know, it doesn't matter, but we have to, we need to see a live fish because now we're doing catch and release, right? And so I said, how are you going to get the fish? And he said, well, you know, each morning before you guys are shooting, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go out and I'm going to catch the fish for you. And I was like, Joe, I would not want that job because I've fished and I would never want that amount of pressure on me. So good luck to you. And when the movie's done, I would like to go fishing with you because apparently you know where to go to get fish that you're going to guarantee to catch are guaranteed to catch. So let's go do that when we're all done here. Um, and you know, true to form, like he showed up and, and he, he caught those fish that were in that film. Wow. That's really cool. And yeah, definitely something that you notice as an angler that they're indeed wild fish, right? Yeah. Joe, um, has said, you know, I, I don't know. He always used to tell me, I don't know if this movie's going to be any good or not, but you're going to have better looking fish than they did in a river run through it. <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. Yep. No doubt. Um, and, uh, road drift boats was also helped you out with the film, right? What, what did they provide some boats for you? And yeah, they brought out, so there's a, you know, a fishing scene with, um, Brian and Wes where they're rowing down the, um, the Yellowstone river. And, and, you know, again, to be, you know, differentiate ourselves a little bit from river runs through it. We wanted to have, um, that drift boat scene. You don't, you know, everybody who lives in the West knows, you know, most people, fish from a drift boat or a lot of people do and, and we wanted that authenticity and, and that scene in the, in the film yeah so we called them up and basically said would you bring down a, a boat for the day and they put it in the water and you know got in the in the spot and then you know let us use it all day and then took it away so it was you know it, just the passion and the um kindness of the five fishing community that, that supported this film i mean josh has already mentioned you know the other partners but Basically, we couldn't have made it without their support. So, uh, yeah, we also had um, we also had all the nets in the film were hand built by this guy named Mike Craig, who runs No Leaf Clover Nets. And you know, again, looking at just stuff, uh, we have an opportunity here. Let's do something cool, right? We could have just used an aluminum net or one of those standard wood nets that everybody has. But I was like, I own some of Mike's nets, and I was just like, these things are so cool. Like, why don't we put these in there, right? Like, and again, like he shipped them out to us. We put them in the film, we shipped them back. Like it's that kind of stuff, you know, and, and the way that even like, you know, I mean, Tom Morgan, like they literally built, they hand built two bamboo rods purely for the film. And, um, you know, that level of sort of authenticity that like Steven said, and the detail, like that's what we were always aiming for. Right. We wanted to really say, okay, like, you know, let's, let's do this right. And, and let's give, you know, anglers watching this something to like you know look out for some easter eggs in there sure yeah absolutely and um you know what a again just a, a perfect uh, location to do it you've got uh you know all these major companies that are based in the bozeman livingston area too um so that's cool that they all rallied and got behind your project yeah you know at the end of the day we could have done it regardless like we could have put these guys in Sims waiters, you know, and, and without Sims permission. Um, but you know, it would have cost us, we would have had to go and buy them. Right. And we all know that Sims waiters are amazing, but not, not cheap 
<laughs> things that you can get. Wor- like worth that. every penny, man. I got yeah, a pair worth every are, penny. But I got a pair costly. that are at least ten years old that still don't leak. It doesn't even make any sense. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many days I, I have in them. I mean, put it this way: not conducive to a you know an independent film, right? Budget, um, but they came on and and but they were you know they gave us these waiters to use and um, and and you see it and that's what we really wanted, right? It could have been basic no name waiters. We could have just gotten blank rods, like whatever that is. But I think when you see that we're using like legit stuff and really good quality equipment and tackle and and clothing, um, you know, it just it takes it to another level, you know. And we had an opportunity here. River runs through it. Those guys are in their wool pants and, you know, the rods are all hand built. Like they're not paying attention to that stuff. But now the sort of fly fishing, the world of fly fishing has changed, you know. And so featuring, you know, some of these really great companies and and then providing us with all this stuff, it would have been a much more expensive film. Or we would have had to limit ourselves in some way, you know, um, if we hadn't had that level of support. Yeah. And another one was um, Angler's West Fly Shop uh, down in Immigrant, Montana gave us their shop for the day and really, you know, again, that authenticity of having a, you know, have them in a real shop, not something that, you know, we had we to built sort of, or was a stage <laughs> or something like that. Exactly. And, and they also, you know, when I said, you know, they were the ones who gave us the waiters for the crew, you know, I, I need five more waiters. Like I ran down to the shop and they're like, go in the back and grab what you need and bring them back when you're done. So, I mean, just such, such support was amazing. Oh, that's cool. That was anglers West. I wondered what fly shop that was. Cool. Um, and then what role did um, Warriors in, in Quiet Waters uh, have in this film? We've had them on this podcast before, and we learned a lot about the benefits of fly fishing, fly tying, rod building, um, really from, um, you know, like a deep physiological aspect too within the mind of um, wounded veterans. Yeah. So I'll, I'll sort of talk about the, you know, pre-production part of it and then, and then, you know, Josh can see how they influence the film and, and their involvement there. Um, so yeah, living in Bozeman here, I, I wasn't too familiar with them until um, my daughter went to a little Montessori school and I saw a guy who has two magic legs, you know, he's um, double amputee from the, the knee down and um, he had a big WQW sticker on his, his truck. And I, I said, I got to find out what, what this organization is. And, you know, came to realize they do, they take post um, 9-11 combat vets fly fishing, you know, as you said, for therapy and both uh, physical and mental aspect of that. And uh, so, yeah, I met this guy named Saul Martinez. I told him about the script and, and he said that we should talk and I sent it over to them. And, you know, they obviously really responded to the story, which is, you know, basically in line with, with the story of all the warriors who come to fish at their ranch. And, um you know, as we sort of started to move along, they just became sort of a partner for us, you know, advisory and um, later on in production, which, which Josh can sort of talk about. We went fishing with them and, and how that influenced the, the story. Yeah, I mean, you know, we and Stephen would agree with me here when we set out to make this movie, you know, the, the story that we're telling here. It's so important that we get this film right. You know, that was my main concern was how do we get this right? Not only how do we get the fly fishing right so that we get, you know, we don't get chewed out by anglers, you know, but how do we get the portrayal of the military correct? How do we get the portrayal of the VA correct? How do we get the portrayal of PTSD correct? Right. Because like when you talk to these guys, um, meaning like, you know, veterans and even active duty, they're like, "Ah, I can't watch 
movies about military guys. It's also fake. You know, it's, it's like, it's not real. They don't get it right, you know? And so it makes you really go, okay, how do I get it right? You know, that's my challenge, you know? But the thing to me at the end of the day is because this movie is about, you know, the trauma of, of war, the trauma of loss, you know, it's, it's, there's, we need to portray that correctly. You know, it's so important to get it right so that it helps at the end of the day and, and is not something that's easily dismissed, you know, to say, oh, they didn't get that right. I'm not going to pay attention to it. And really the way to get it right is by going out into the world and talking to the people that are living this. And so, like Steve said, um, I came out in, you know, we shot it in August of 2021. So I came out in May, 2021. Uh, surprisingly, I'd never been to Montana before. So that's also the reason I wanted to do the movie. Um, but, you know, uh, I had never been to Montana. So I came out and it's like, well, let's see what this is like. I got to uh, let's scout. We got to go location scouting. So we spent several days location scouting. And then uh, one day, Stephen and I had the chance to go out on an FX with the, the group. And for those that don't know, an FX is like a fishing experience. And so we were on the fuse. And of course, I'd never fished a pews either, but we were out there and we got to talk to a couple of guys that were like team leaders, right? We didn't really, some of these guys come out, they don't want to talk. It's not a public thing. You know, they, they, they want to come out and fish and, and we wanted to respect that privacy. But at the same time, you know, we did want to get some feedback. We wanted to sort of talk to people. So we ended up talking to these two guys who were like team leaders. Um, you know, I think that, I don't know if that's the actual term, but they're sort of, they're not really fishing, but they're there for the other guys that have come out. They've been through the program before and they're there to sort of help support in whatever way they want. But we really got to talking to these guys and we realized that one of them had a very, very similar story to what Steven wrote. You know, he was injured, he was going through, he went through the VA system and then he eventually got out. And one of the this is a little inside baseball. One of the struggles Stephen and I had when we were crafting the story, maybe it was more me, but you know, was in the original draft of the script, Coulter is injured and he's out of the military and he's going, he's at the VA kind of as a halfway house situation, you know, where he's, which that is a negative connotation, but like, you know, he, he's, he's about to transition out and he knows he's transitioning out. Like he's done military over. And the struggle was just how, like, why does a guy like that, why, why would a guy like that accept the idea of going fly fishing? Right. I just, I, I was struggling with it. And, but we were sort of like, well, yeah, when you get injured, you're done. Like you're not in the military anymore. And as we got to talking to this vet, he was like, oh, you know, like I, I was injured and I was, I was going through sort of the, the warrior transition unit. And I said, oh, what's that? And he's like, oh, well, it's like kind of you go through this series of tests and the series of process to sort of they determine whether you're going to go back in or you're going to stay out. And I was like, oh, wait, what do you hang on? Like, if you get injured, you you can go back in. He said, yeah, he's like he's like and but he was telling us about how his experience was. He really rehabilitated himself physically, but he did not rehabilitate himself mentally. Right. He was still very much experienced, you know, suffering from the experience of trauma and the PTSD. And he ended up transitioning out. Right. But I thought, oh, if that's not a decision that's made immediately, that gives Coulter sort of motivation to do because Coulter wants to stay in. Right. So if you have a character who he, he would like to be in the Marines for life. Right. And he gets injured and is out. I don't know why he would go fishing. I don't know why you would do anything. Right. And I think that's what you're seeing, you know, in a lot of cases, like the challenge of dealing of how to help these guys when their entire image of themselves is around the military. And now that's been ripped away from them. Right. But in our story, 
we needed some because we're making a movie, right? You got to have this narrative forward momentum and and motivation and arcs and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things about culture was if he believes that he it's possible for him to get back in, you know, uh, with some naivete, right? Like he thinks he can get back in when everyone around him sees it's not, and the audience sees it's not, but he believes he can. He might be willing to go do whatever it took, but by going and doing whatever it took, i.e., fly fishing. He's now opened himself to the possibility of overcoming that trauma, right? When that wasn't his goal. And so anyway, so that was like something that, that came out of a conversation we had with these guys standing next to, you know, the Spring Creek at the pews. And it just totally informed how we then sort of went back in and developed out this story so that it felt like culture was, what it became was, what am I really aiming for? What am I pursuing anymore? Right. And if he's pursuing fly fishing as a way to get back in, but then that gets ripped out, well, then that becomes your sort of, you know, dark night of the soul period in the film. As much as we're telling sort of a story based in reality, you still got to adhere to some dramatic elements, right? That make movies movies. It's not a documentary. Um, but as long as we sort of hit the emotional truth of this story, which Steve had already really set up in his original script, you know, that's what we aim for. And then we wanted to sort of allow that to exist on a bed of accuracy and authenticity. Wow. That's cool. So that was actually kind of an adjustment in the storyline that came about just from meeting and fishing with these actual vets. Yeah. Because you, you want to know what, what's this like? I don't know what it's like. I've never been in the military. Like I don't have that experience. And so to get it right, you got to make sure we wanted to really talk to everybody we could. I know that we ended up talking to the VA. Um, they read the script and provided us some really great feedback. And of course, one of the challenges in the movie is while there's no real bad guy in the film, I mean, culture is kind of his own worst enemy, so to speak. We kind of had a thread, a very fine line with the VA. We needed the VA to sort of be not a bad guy or an antagonist, but they couldn't be the perfect help. Right. <laughs> um, right. You know, there, there had to yeah, be that's, some. That's delicate for sure. Yeah. We didn't want to insult the work that they were doing, but we also kind of needed that work to not work for Coulter. Right. And we sort of threaded that needle. Like, so example in the, in the group therapy scene, which um, features Saul, who Stephen had mentioned before, um, you know, he says this group has helped me enormously. Right. So like there is evidence that like that kind of therapy, that kind of approach does work for some people. In our movie's case, it just does not work for culture. He's not ready yet, you know? And so that's how we kind of threaded that needle and make sure we release accurate, but that, you know, it was something based on our character's response to it, not like the VA is cold and callous and doesn't care about the people, you know? And I think that's emblematic of Dr. Burke and how she approaches both Ike and Coulter and sort of, again, going out of her way to say, look, I know the things that we're offering you might not work. Have you ever thought about fly fishing, right? Fly fishing is not some sanctioned activity. At least I could be wrong, but I don't believe it's a part of, you know, VA's therapy, at least officially. Um, and so I think like, again, finding ways to sort of create obstacles and create barriers for our character, but do it in a way that felt accurate and authentic to the story that we were telling. Another really great thing that came out of just talking to guys was I, I sort of immediately started reaching out and connecting with sort of veterans who had gotten into fly fishing because I wanted to understand a a very personal perspective, you know, of, of why did they do it? 
um, what it meant to them. And there was one guy in particular, he was a Marine. He'd experienced a pretty severe trauma, although it wasn't, wasn't related to combat. It was related to something else, but he still was a vet and had that experience. And he, he, he was the one who told me he was sitting on the banks with a guy who was like an older guy, you know, similar to Ike. And he basically told him, he's like, he tells him the line at towards, you know, not, I'm giving not, that, that, that Ike tells Coulter, which is, you know, all a soldier always believes that the military, it's, it's his whole story, you know, but it's not, it's just a chapter, right? It's not the whole story. And, and hearing that, I was like, my God, that's, that's got to go in the script, you know? Um, that just sums up the whole thing. And that, that was something that came to us through research. And so again, when you're making a movie like this, being able to talk to the real guys, have conversations with them, understand their point of view, you know, you never know what they're going to say that might really significantly inform the story that you're telling in a way that just makes it that much more, um, gives it that much more potential to connect with that audience. Right. And, you know, what a cool opportunity for this film to be kind of become like the catalyst for for some wounded veterans to to explore fly fishing as a possible, you know, means to recovery. That's really that's really profound. Yeah. And it might be it might be fly fishing. Right. We had a lot of people we'd give the script to, especially once we got into doing a lot of the work with the military and Department of Defense, which we can talk about in a minute. But like there were guys who said, yeah, I read the script like I've never fly fished before. I don't know what that's like, but. Um, I totally understand the movie because I surf and to me, surfing yeah. is the fly fishing in the film or another guy said, I, I do woodworking and the woodworking to me is the fly fishing in the film. And so I think despite the fact that it's a movie that is very much about fly fishing and the ethos of fly fishing and the, the spirituality of fly fishing, um, you don't have to fly fish to connect to the film, especially if you're a veteran, you know, it might be horses taking care of horses it might be group, you know, it might be fly fishing, it might be regular fishing, it might be deep sea fishing, it might be, you know, um, like I said, woodworking, it might be surfing, right? Like, like you still have the ability to watch this movie and connect to it because it's speaking to a greater idea of, of trauma and how we overcome it and how we heal. The mechanism by which we do that is less important than the possibility of it. Yeah, great point. Um, what was the Department of Defense's role in this film, and, and how did that come to pass? Uh, one of our producers, Kelly McKendry, who is an Army brat herself, um, you know, reached out to the Marine Corps. You know, it was written as a Marine, so she reached out to the Marine Corps and just asked, you know, what kind of support they could give us. And obviously, they had to read the script and, and vet it. And um, so we had the, a, a man named Major Patterson, who's no longer with the Marine Corps, but he was our liaison at the time. And he read the script and Josh was talking about, you know, surfing as a therapy. And he's very involved with um, taking uh, wounded vets surfing. And he immediately connected with the script. He, you know, called us up and said, this is beautiful. This is, you know, really important story. How can we help? And at the time I had written this, you know, opening war scene that took took place in Afghanistan. And I assumed we were going to shoot it, you know, and in Montana, it's, um, you know, you know, there's parts of Montana that can are very deserty. So I just figured that's what we would, you know, end up doing. Cause I couldn't imagine, you know, going to a place that was actually a desert and shooting this. It just didn't seem possible on the budget of this film, but, um, you know, the Marine Corps came in and, you know, said they would support shooting that opening scene on Camp Pendleton in California. And, you know, they gave us the, 
the Humvees, the the weapons, the Marines that are in that opening scene are real Marines. Um, and so we use their uh, immersion training base that looks like an Afghan village. And uh, just just an amazing um, support. And, and, and as you said, um, you know, this it merely makes this this movie look a lot bigger than it is. And um, and so, you know, through their support, you know, they have to have the approval of the Department of Defense, which we also got. And, um, you know, and Josh can talk a little bit about shooting that opening scene there um, as you were as you were noting that one that one or that that opens up the movie. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. That's uh, that's a, just one of those opening scenes that grabs you right out of the gate. Yeah, well, you know, it, it has um, sort of serves two purposes. Um, <clears throat> for one, there's a narrative purpose, and then there's a behind the scenes, inside baseball making of the film purpose. Um, the 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 narrative purpose is that I I'm a subjective filmmaker. You know, I really like telling stories with a subjective point of view and really anchoring our audience's experience in whatever they're watching, uh, through the, the main character, you know, and, and I'm not like an objective guy, like you'll see objective films and they sort of are shot. However, they they tend to be sort of more like, you know, if you're two guys are sitting there, it's just like two shots and then an over, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, you know, it's not, it's not a, super stylistic sort of thing, but I don't really make movies like that. And initially I was like, man, like, you know, we've got an opportunity here to immediately connect the audience and put them through exactly what culture has gone through. Right. This is not a, this is not a thing where it's sort of a war scene shot, like a typical war scene where you sort of go, okay, I'm seeing the cuts. I understand that like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a movie. Right. And it lets the audience off the hook. Those can still be super dynamic and engaging, but to a degree, it just, every time you cut, you let the audience off the hook. Um, and narratively, I just thought, you know, let's, let's give, let's as a whole with the movie, let's take the audience on the exact same journey that culture is going on. So from the very beginning, we are locked in with Coulter. You know, we go through this really horrific war scene, um, which I'll come back to in a second. And then we immediately get out of that and we go to Montana. And if you watch closely, the first half of the movie, up until when Coulter goes fishing for the first time, it is almost entirely shot in close-ups. And we generally avoid, um, you know, drone shots or any big wide shots of Montana, um, even when he's outside. We're tight, close. We don't really see because Coulter's not seeing that around him. You know, he's not seeing the beauty of Montana yet. So even like the first time we see Coulter in Montana, you see Livingston, but it's shot through the van windows. You're inside the van. You know, you're not in a nice drone shot panning off the van and seeing the beautiful town of Livingston because that he doesn't see it that way. He's like, I don't even know why I'm here. Right. And it's not until he goes fishing and he sees the Yellowstone for the first time that we widen out. Right. We got that nice crane shot. We go to a drone like and so I wanted to mirror Coulter's journey and the, experience, the way he's experiencing the movie. Right. The story. I wanted that to be mirrored for the audience. So the audience doesn't get to see Montana as a whole, except for the one shot with Ike. But he, they really get to see Montana until Coulter gets to see Montana. And so coming back to the opening scene, um, narratively, I just thought, you know, if we shoot this as a one you're never letting the audience off the hook. You are not allowing the tension to go away because by cutting the shot, you know, cutting to another angle. If you keep it as a oneer, you never give the audience a moment to like just blink, 
right? And also, it's just like, that's what war is like. There's no cuts. There's no, like, you know, getting to see a close-up of the guy with the RPG. Like, you only see that quickly from a distance. You can barely see it. You know, it's chaotic. And I just thought that would be a really great way to just throw, throw you know, the audience into the experience of, of the chaos of war. And so narratively, it just felt like it really fit to do that. The sort of behind the scenes version of why I did that is I, one, really love oneers, But the other thing is it allows you to shoot a lot of stuff in a very limited amount of time. Because if you were to shoot that war scene typically, right, with a lot of different angles and all that stuff, not only do you have to set up all those individual angles, but you also have to repeat takes for all those individual angles, right? So um, that requires, sh and the other thing too, is that the audience expects to see a lot of that scene, right? Like if you, if you decide not to show an explosion, they're going to go, why didn't you show the explosion? It's like, well, we didn't have the money to really do it. So we just, you know what I mean? But if you're in a one the audience automatically, they, they recognize psychologically that you are in a one and you're not going to see everything. And so it gives you flexibility and freedom to show certain things or not show certain things. Like, you know, we would have had to cover all those Marines firing those guns in a bunch of different angles. And we would have had to see all the bad guys getting shot up. Right. And like that could have been really effective, but we just frankly did not have the time to do all that. And so by, by limiting itself to a one -er, you basically, yeah, you spend the first half of the day rehearsing, but then you get three, four takes in. If you get it, you're done and you move on to the next thing. And so that has been an approach that I've used in other films that's like really, really saved me time. But also it just creates a really, really dynamic and exciting, um, you know, shot and or scene. And it really also involves the crew because everybody knows you're doing a one-er and everybody's holding their breath, right? Like hoping that you get it, hoping that the camera operator doesn't make a mistake, hoping that everything goes off the way it should. And, uh, and when you get it, everybody is excited and happy. And, and so it's just, it's a really great way of involving everybody and putting everybody on edge for a minute as you attempt to do it. And so, you know, it makes it, it, it allowed us to get that whole scene in the time that we had available to us. If we had had to do it the other way, it just would have been, it would have been out of our budget. It would have been out of our, our, our ability to, to capture that, that war scene in a way that, that really justified us being there. Well, it, well, it worked well done. Congratulations on that one. So, Thank you. um, and what was, uh, what was it like, um, filming in Montana? I, I, my, I used to work in television back in the day and, um, Montana was always one of the easier States to film in. Is it still that way? Yeah, I found Montana to be incredibly supportive. The one challenge with Montana is like, you know, they have a really great filming incentive. So they encourage people to come and you get money back. The challenge with that, though, is Montana, I think it's a fairly new system. And Montana doesn't necessarily have the quite have the infrastructure um, to support. And, and you've run into this in other states. I had this experience in Oklahoma a couple of years ago where they had a fantastic incentive, but they don't have really the crew and infrastructure to support a lot of different productions. You know, you have kind of your A team, your B team, and that's it. 
And Montana is similar. Actually, funny enough, there's a lot of crew. There's a lot of people from LA that work in LA that actually have houses and live up in Montana and they just travel down to LA for work because it's a pretty easy shuttle. Um, but that doesn't mean they necessarily want to work in Montana. So that is really the only challenge. You have to kind of bring in quite a number of people, you know, depending on, on your production. Obviously that eats up costs. So if you're a studio, Montana's like, great. And what's the difference on uh, a more independent film? You just have to be careful about how you sort of set up your production. That's sort of what we found. That said, the people we got and the level of support from the state um, was fantastic. And I mean, look, like you've got, it does so much for you. I just have to put Brian in front of the Absorca Mountains and tell him to say, yeah. I don't have to do anything else, you know? <laughs> Like you just put them on the Yellowstone, you know, like it's so much production value because that's what it is. That's where, so really the, like the ability to, to get the permits, to shoot on the Yellowstone river, to shoot on the Gallatin, to shoot on Depew's Spring Creek, like that does so much for you. And, and that's where we really got the okay and the support from the state of Montana. Um, you know, and even from the beginning, I'll let Steven tell you, but even from the beginning, the state and especially the, the, the people in film there, um, were really supportive of the project and, and actually gave, uh, Steve, I, is it a grant? I'll let you tell it, Steven. Yeah. So like, like I said, I, I wrote the, the script many years ago and, and it, you know, kind of got pushed around here, tried to get it to some people. And, um, I got it to a, a woman named Jerry Rafter, who's a producer here in uh, Montana, actually in Missoula out, out by you. And she read the script and she told me to apply for the big sky film grant from the Montana film office. And I got the grant. I was one of two narrative films to get some money from the state that year. It wasn't a ton of money, but the validation that I got um, from that grant really pushed the, uh, the production forward. And I don't think the film would have got made without that grant. Just the, um, the validation it gave me in the script when I started sending it around. So, um, and then throughout the whole process, the Montana Film Office you know, we, if we called and we said we needed, you know, a crew, you know, to the incentive that they gave us for filming here, um, their just support was, you know, incredible. Allison Whitmer came to the set. She's the head of the film office and, you know, made sure everything was going smoothly and asked what we could do. She helped with our um, scouting trip. So their support was just unbelievable. Well, Stephen, it sounds like you were just on, on a roll, man. You got the, you got the grant, you got, uh, the Department of Defense on board. You got you got Simon Gosworth. Like people must have really, really um, been drawn to this script, right? Well, I like to say that if you want to make an independent film, make it about veterans and fly fishing because they are the two most passionate uh, audiences you will ever find. People who, you know, served in the military or support veterans will do anything for for their organization or or you know another veteran. And as you know, fly fishermen are just incredibly passionate. Our executive producer, Mark Kamora, he came on uh, when it was just a script and, and you know, he had never helped, uh, never worked on a film before. And I just found him through the American Museum of Fly, American Museum of fly Fishing, uh, which we, he's a board member. And his passion for the film just won out. Um, and, you know, he supported us throughout the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, definitely lucky to get the support that we have, but I think it was, it was all due to people want to support veterans and their love of fly fishing. 
And and you had written for several magazines, right, over the over the years, The Drake and Fly Rod and Reel and Field and Stream. Um, I'm sure many others that, that I'm not aware of, but uh was this one of your first screenplays or um, it's the first one I ever wrote by myself. Um, when I was back when I was living in New York and I was a magazine editor, I had a good friend named Brian, Brian Blatstein, who was an actor, was doing sort of the circuit on NYPD Blue and uh, CSI and stuff. And he wanted a bigger role for himself and asked me if, you know, I wanted to write something with him. And we started sit, to sit down and we wrote a couple scripts together. And it was, you know, one of the greatest experiences of my life, you know, writing a story, making up a story with your best friend. And uh, you know, we were going to be, you know, the next Matt and Ben or, you know, Ed Burns and kind of shoot it ourselves. But um, and that was sort of the plan with this script. But, you know, I, I quickly learned what I did not know was a lot. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm indebted to Josh for life for coming on and, you know, not only, you know, shooting this thing and and, uh, you know, doing it, as you said, with such, um, you know, it just looks amazing. But letting me be there every day. And I've learned so much from him about not only writing, uh, but filmmaking and just being on a set. It's, it's been an incredible journey. Well, were you and your buddy not handsome enough to be there? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely am not. Uh, he could have pulled it off. Um, I think, I think it more came down to, you know, finding that money and we never wrote anything. I don't think that, you know, we, we were, you know, obviously going to make an independent movie and you need to have something that people are super passionate about or a big star. And, you know, obviously two guys, you know, hanging out in a bar writing aren't going to find the next, you know, get, get the script to, to Bruce Willis. But, you know, writing a script about fly fishing and veterans really made the difference. And, you know, as we said, the support just came out of the woodwork. Yeah, you're not going to attract J-Lo with, with that <laughs> yeah. approach. Well, that's excellent. Um, so the film has been um, shown at uh, some film festivals and stuff already and um, will be released by a major studio uh, later. Can you guys um, kind of speak to that? Yeah, we, um, you know, we were able to premiere the film at the Woodstock International Film Festival, which is really exciting um, and felt right for the film. You know, uh, the Woodstock Catskills area is the birthplace of American fly fishing. It's near where I live. I live up in the Hudson Valley of New York, and it felt like the right place to kind of premiere it. Um, and, and that was really wonderful. And then we, soon after that, we screened it at the San Diego International Film Festival, which also felt right because of the large veteran community and active duty military community, you know, out in San Diego. And they presented us with an award, the Valor Award, um, for movies that sort of portray military service and, and, and veterans. And, um, that was obviously very exciting. And then, and then after that, we, you know, started chopping the film. Um, you know, for those that don't know, there are some movies that get made with like Universal Studios or Warner Brothers, and those are sort of made from the beginning. But independent films often are independently financed um, by investors. And then you got to go find a buyer who's going to either put it on a streamer or put it on, you know, iTunes or, or put it in the theaters. And, um, and so we were really fortunate to find uh, Blue Fox Entertainment and Sony Pictures came on board as a package and basically Sony um, took the worldwide rights to the film, the digital rights to the film, and we'll be releasing it digitally like iTunes, you know, Amazon, all that stuff for, you know, where you can rent it uh, both in the U S and the world. Um, but before that happens, Blue Fox Entertainment is going to be releasing it theatrically on June 9th. And so it'll be in theaters across the country. Um, you'll be able to, 
we'll provide a link that people can click on in the show notes to like where they can go find tickets and there'll be more info about that. But um, we're really, really excited because just, you know, look, I, as a filmmaker, the challenge of getting a movie to screen in theaters these days is so difficult. You know, um, the movies that are screening in theaters are big major studio blockbusters. They're the big superhero movies, big action movies, you know, uh, small independents are struggling right now. But I think that to see the level of support from both Sony and Blue Fox for putting this movie in the theater speaks volumes about how they think this film is going to be received by um, the public. And I think that, you know, the ability to go, to go see this film in a theater, right? It's just such a different experience. Like still, as much as streamers and everybody has, everybody has their home systems and a 60-inch TV, 70-inch TV, to be in a theater just changes the dynamic of what you're experiencing. And so uh, to be able to go see that for lis your listeners or anybody, you know, who comes across this or happens to see the film, like go see it in the theater. It'll just be a completely different experience. Um, and that'll, that happens June 9th and it'll be in theaters for a little bit. And then eventually it'll be out on digital and streamers. Wow. That's so cool. So, so Steven, were you at the premiere? I imagine. Yeah. I, I got to see it in Woodstock where, um, you know, I grew up in New England, so I had a lot of family there. Um, uh, you know, one of the guys who taught me how to fish, um, on, on the salt was there and that, that meant a lot to me. And then, you know, able to go out to San Diego and, you know, our, our Marine liaison was there and, and a lot of the, the Marine people who worked on the film and helped us, uh, came out and supported it. And it was just, uh, yeah, both of them are amazing events. And as Josh said, like, you know, seeing the big sky on the big screen, it just makes, makes all the difference. So. Oh man, I just put it on my calendar, June 9th. I'm uh, hopefully it's around uh, one of the theaters around here. We'll find it one way or another. Is there um, a specific site or something that folks can go to, to learn more about this and, and where these, uh, where these releases will be? The easiest way to find info later on is, yeah, bluefoxentertainment.com forward slash films forward slash mending the line with dashes between mending and the and the and line. But we'll be sure to send this to you so you can put it in the show, show notes. Obviously, if you, if, you, if you Google mending the line, Google Blue Fox Entertainment mending the line, it'll, it'll, that page will show up. Perfect. Perfect. Well, congratulations, you guys, Stephen. It must have been so rewarding to write the script ten years ago and then see it uh, on on the big screen at the premiere. And and uh, and you guys also won some awards already, right? As yeah, as Josh mentioned, we won the Valor Award at the uh, San Diego Film Festival, which was very meaningful. You know, it's for a, a film that portrays veterans and in, in the military in a in a you know, authentic and, and and you know positive light, and you know has they think the film can really make a difference so that that that's really you know the biggest thing for us is to have this film make a difference like you said if it gets one guy who's struggling to go out and fly fish or surf or just take a walk in in the woods you know that's you know that's great for us that's what we're trying to do here and you know obviously the more people that see it the more chance of that happening so um you know we definitely hope uh people come out and support it well, excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me and telling me about about this project. This is super cool. I'm super excited to see it and um, help spread the word. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Love talking about it. 
Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.